0: every age there is a cause worth fighting for but
1: in the future the greatest threat to our survival will not be man at all Now, the youth of tomorrow must travel across the stars to defend our world.
0: We are a generation commanded by fate to defend humankind.
1: Everyone fights, no one quits.
0: We are going in with first wave. You smash the entire area. You kill
1: anything that has more than two legs. You get me? We get you, sir! But they will face an enemy more devastating than any ever imagined.
2: Lander attacker, so we need retrieval now. Someone made a damn mistake. No! The bugs landed trap for us, didn't they?
1: Ah! Try Star Pictures takes you to the front lines of the next frontier. Kill them all! Starship troopers.
2: Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric.
0: I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna.
2: I watched two films in this week, and I want to mention them as a way of talking about something, and that is audience expectations. One of the two that I watched was Rambo from 2008, which they, <laughs> why they called it Rambo and not give it another subtitle, I don't know, <laughs> because First Blood Part Two was just called Rambo also. This was not a reboot or anything like that. It was another chapter in the Rambo story. Have either of you guys seen this?
1: No. No. I've only made fun of it.
2: (laughs) Okay. Why do you make fun of it?
1: As a kid growing up when Rambo came out, all the boys in school were just like, oh, Rambo, yeah, you know, like macho, wear camo, being tough. You know, play Rambo in school, like that kind of stuff. And I was just like, no, I'm good with that, but I'll make fun of you for it. I'm not going to watch the movie. <laughs> that was me. And then, and I just never got around to watching any Rambo movies because when I would start watching them, I'm like, yeah, not interested. Yeah. So the whole franchise, you you have it out for the whole
0: franchise, not just the 2008. Yeah. 2008- Like, Stallone coming back from the dead, basically.
1: (laughs) Right. Like, I've never had the desire to see it. Nothing against Stallone. I love him. I think he's great. You know, he's an icon in America. But I just never really got into the Rambo series. I mean, you know, if you guys make it a series we do on the show, I'll watch it.
2: (laughs) Okay, we might. But so this brings up what I wanted to talk about. I think that's a common perception of Rambo. Mm -hmm. And the reason is... The original Rambo movie, First Blood, was about a soldier coming back from Vietnam and having trouble stateside. The second Rambo film was him going back to Vietnam to rescue POWs. This is the beginning of the very jingoistic Rambo and like a gazillion bullets flying, people dying and falling off of like (laughs) gun towers and stuff like that. This is what Rambo is in the popular consciousness, right? Just a big muscle guy shooting a machine gun and killing tons and tons and tons and tons of people, right?
1: Right, like the Weird Al Yankovic caricature of Rambo is what we think of. (laughs) And it's very
2: close to the truth for that film. But here's the problem. Rambo in 2008, when they went to remake it, they were very aware of that perception of it, that criticism of it. So they said, I'm guessing, we're going to make this not cartoony, we're going to show the real part of war because they were always criticized for not showing the horrors of war. The problem is (laughs) Rambo shows the horror of wars. Rambo, the 2008 film, all of them. (laughs) It's incredibly gut churning violence. It's about genocide in Southeast Asia, right? Uh, Burma, I think. And um, it is tough to watch. Now, the problem with that is you have fans of the series who are expecting it to be like the other Rambo films. And suddenly it's completely different. So they're not crazy about that, right? So audience expectations is something I want to talk about today. And I'm going to mention it in the other film that I watched recently, which was called Black Death. Black Death is a film set in the high Middle Ages during the Black Death, right? And it has Sean Bean as a... Guy who's searching out witches, which are to blame for the Black Death. If you're familiar with whenever Sean Bean puts on armor in a medieval type thing, something happens to him. (laughs) 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 That happens in this too. And then it becomes Eddie Redmayne's story after that, who's a monk that goes with him. The problem is this movie was panned by audiences and critics. And I watched it and I thought it was pretty damn good. And I think the reason was I went into it not expecting anything. And this was marketed in two different ways. It was marketed as a horror film, and it has a couple of horror elements to it. It has witches in it. The closest I could describe it as like folk horror, which we've talked about with like Midsomer. It's a lot like that. Midsomer in the Middle Ages. So it's not really a traditional horror film. It was also marketed as an action film. And there is only two fight scenes in the whole film. That's the extent of the action. So it's neither an action film nor a horror film. It's more of a contemplative drama set in the Middle Ages about what people thought the Black Death was. So obviously these audiences are going to hate it, right? I bring that up because I'm going to talk about the difference between what audiences expect and what audiences get in our movie today. But before we get to that, what have you been watching?
1: Boardwalk Empire. I think oh, I had mentioned that last uh, last episode. We're still wrapping that up. And I'm finally to the point in the series where I haven't seen any of the episodes. So we're slowly you know, getting that done. But also we finished up Ozark this week, which, wow. So the first part of the most recent season blew my mind and I can't ever get enough of that show. I'm actually thinking about starting it over from the beginning and just watching every episode until like up to the most recent one that came out so I can be ready for the second half of this current season to come out.
0: So I, for my part, also just finished a series I've been working on, Station Eleven, which only has one season at the moment. There may be future seasons, but from what I remember of the book, this pretty well encapsulates most of the story. The book is fantastic, but I have to say the TV series on HBO is even better. It just does a great job of layering in the different elements, and it's visually stunning, emotionally devastating, and you you just can't look away that that kind of series it also is you know personally for me my kind of jam because it shows how Shakespeare is still relevant to the human experience hundreds of years later even during an apocalypse so my inner Shakespeare nerd is all about this but I think they do a really excellent job so I highly recommend Station Eleven
2: okay well let's jump into this Movie we talked about came out in 97. So let's talk about what life was like in 1997. In 1997, gas was $1.22 a gallon.
1: I miss those days. Wow. Before
2: (laughs) endless wars in distant deserts. But we'll come back to that. Loaf of bread was $1.17. Your average movie ticket price, $4.59.
1: Oh, no way.
0: (laughs)
2: Dang. Yeah, we thought
1: that was expensive back then. We thought that was too much.
2: <laughs> January 22nd, Lottie Williams of Tulsa, Oklahoma, has a piece of a Delta II rocket fall on her, and she becomes the only known person hit by a reentering piece of space debris. January 26th, in Super Bowl thirty one at the Louisiana Superdome, New Orleans, Green Bay Packers beat the New England Patriots 35 to 21. March 24th, at the 69th Academy Awards, the English patient takes best picture. April 14th, Eric Priebke, former SS officer responsible for the, I think it's our massacre, was retried. Retried, this is his appeal. He escaped a British prison camp in 1946 and fled to Argentina where he lived for the next 50 years. In 1997, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Later, that was reduced to just five. Then he was retried the next year and sentenced to life under house arrest with guards who followed him whenever he left his apartment in Rome, where he lived another 16 years and died at 100 years old. Wow. So there you go. More Nazis getting away with crap (laughs) and fleeing to Argentina. (laughs) May 15th, the US acknowledges that it engaged in the secret war in Laos from 1959 to 1975. July 1st, Hong Kong reverts to Chinese rule. July 4th, NASA's Pathfinder probe lands on Mars. July 21st, the USS Constitution, aka Old Ironsides, the world's oldest seaworthy vessel, set sail on her 200th anniversary voyage. Wow. Did you see what I did there?
1: Yeah. It all comes back.
2: (laughs) All these, all of these all come back. August 3rd through 11th, two of the three islands of the Union of Comoros, they attempt to revert to colonial rule by France, but President Jacques Chirac refuses to recolonize them, resulting in the two islands being reintegrated into the Comoros over the next two years. October 16th, the New York Times starts printing in color. November of 1997, shortly after walking away from a Star Wars franchise deal, Bantam pays $3 million for the rights to a new Dune series by Star Wars writer Kevin J. Anderson and Frank Herbert's son, Brian. November 7th, 1997, Starship Troopers is released. Now, since we are coming right off of Showgirls, (laughs)
0: a natural segue (laughs) absolutely
2: this is a good time to mention that this is the next film by Paul Verhoeven and it also is the first in a new series we're doing on sandworms thank you Rosie for suggesting that you're welcome (laughs) I wanted to talk a little bit about what sandworms are on earth before we get to sandworms
1: other places
2: (laughs) there are a few different definitions for a sandworm. One is a lugworm. Lugworms are three to inches to a foot long that burrow in the sand on beaches, and they leave these distinctive coiled castings. They're known primarily as a source of bait for fishing. Then there is the king ragworm, also known as a sandworm. It's another sand burrowing marine worm. They can grow up to four feet long. (laughs) And they're also used as bait and even farmed. According to Wikipedia, the source I use for everything on this show, so take it with a grain (laughs) of salt. According to Wikipedia, sandworm farming in Maine employs over a thousand people.
1: Yikes. (laughs) So
2: yes, there are sandworm farms. Just think about that. This is
1: like a whole industry and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) the noble sandworm
2: hookworm
0: (laughs) hookworms they're sandworms
2: hookworm larvae are sometimes known as sandworms the less said about hookworms the better
1: (laughs) yes please i'm getting ready to go to a beach and we're talking about sandworms
2: (laughs) (laughs) okay well i will take us away from the beach sandworms is also the nickname for sandworm team also known as Unit 74455, a Russian military hacking group responsible for a number of cyber attacks, especially against the Ukraine. Several members were convicted in absentia in the U.S. in 2020. They have been extremely active lately, as you can probably guess. Mm -hmm. There's also a book about them called Sandworm Team. And then finally, the only other reference to sandworms I've found is to the Mongolian death worm, a cryptid said to live in the Gobi Desert. And the worm is been cited or said to live in the western and southern Gobi. Cryptozoologist Ivan Mackerly in his book Altansadakavd, something like that quotes a Mongolian legend describing it as traveling underground, creating waves of sand on the surface which allow it to be detected. It said it can s- kill at a distance by either an electric discharge or spraying venom at its prey. It supposedly lives and burrows underground and only rarely comes to the surface. So, mackerly in 1990 and 92, led expeditions to the Gobi Desert to search for the worm. He built a motor driven thumper and used it and use small explosions to try to attract the sandworm, the giant sandworm. We will eventually talk about where sandworms fit with today's film, but let's have the background (laughs) to the production of Starship Troopers.
0: I'm going to talk about this in terms of the book and in terms of the film, because I think a lot of today, oh, look, see, someone even has a copy. Of course you do, Eric.
2: (laughs) I love this book. I read this book I think this came after Lord of the Rings for me. I noticed very faintly printed on the side of it. It's, I'm holding up a paperback copy and it, it's got a stamp. So I may have <laughs> taken it from my junior high, but I seem to recall having read it before I was 12. So I may have gotten this at a library or sale after it had been deacquisitioned. Or maybe, maybe I just stole it from the library. I don't know. Anyway...
0: I'm going to say you did a public service there because as far as I can tell, the book is dangerous to the mind of youths and you're taking it out of circulation has saved an innocent <laughs> mind from falling into fascist peril. So I applaud you. I disagree.
2: And I will talk about when we get to the reactions phase here, I will talk about the book before we talk more about the movie.
0: All right, good. I have not read the book, but I did enjoy learning more about Robert Heinlein, the author who was an aeronautical engineer who served in the Navy during World War II. So he was very invested in the U.S. maintaining its status as a military power. He apparently wrote Starship Troopers as a response to the U.S. suspending its nuclear tests, which he saw as a seriously bad sign that we were going to leave our military open and vulnerable and we were going to lose our status as a superpower. So you can see a lot of those political views reflected in the book, along with sort of a general those crazy kids kind of attitude that more conservative people in the 50s had towards the teenagers in 1959 leading into the 60s. There's a lot of emphasis on discipline, for instance, in both the book and the film, which apparently is Heinlein's view of how the teenagers maybe should have been treated to, you know, snap them back into the line. He was considered one of the big three in terms of sci-fi writers, along with Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. This particular novel won the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 1960 and garnered general praise for its realistic depictions of training and combat and a visualization of the future military, that it was very realistic And also impressively rendered. I wanted to pull out one quote from the book that is going to lead into what I think Verhoeven was trying to do with it. The noblest fate that a man can endure is to place his own mortal body between his loved home and war's desolation.
2: Which is also from the Star Spangled Banner, right? Everybody knows the part that's sung before football games and stuff like that. But the next stanza is like, oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved homes and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven rescued land praise the power that has made and preserved us a nation. Oh, say does that star spangled banner still wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave.
0: I'm impressed. Yeah, that first of all, snaps to that. But also, the quote out of context, I have to say, is pretty alarming. I mean, in context, you kind of know that it's a military song that was written in the early 19th century. And so you're like, okay, that makes sense in that context. But thinking of it hundreds of years later, it has much more of a frightening fascist ring than it did thinking of it applying to a new nation defending itself. So just out of context, I feel like this quote the noblest fate that a man can endure is to place his own mortal body between his loved home and war's desolation, to me, rings more of Nazi Germany than it does of early United States.
2: What if I were to tell you Heinlein was a liberal Democrat?
0: Oh, I would believe it. I I mean, he's, he's a liberal Democrat who served in the Navy during World War II. Like, he's just got a very particular lens on the military.
2: I can't wait to get into this part of it, but let's continue.
0: So the way the movie came about, the screenwriter, Newmeyer was a big fan of the book, and he and Verhoeven had come off of doing Robocop together, and so even though Verhoeven did not really like the book, he apparently read a couple chapters and got bored, and it was like, this is all right-wing BS, I don't have time for this. So Verhoeven didn't actually even finish reading the book, but he trusted Newmeyer that He had good instincts and it was worth tackling it. But Verhoeven was the one who decided to add in the satirical elements, which we will get to later about how effective that satire is. But in the DVD commentary for the film, Verhoeven said that his primary message was war makes fascists of us all. And that It's not necessarily that the book has a fascist bent, but that that is what war is. So, you know, insofar as the book glorifies or romanticizes war, that's where this romanticism towards fascism comes from as well. However, it's very clear that Verhoeven was intentionally working in references to the cinema of Nazi Germany. There are shot-for-shot remakes in the film that have parallels to Triumph of the Will. For instance, the opening propaganda shot is a shot-for-shot for for one of the scenes of an outdoor rally of the the Reich Labor Service.
2: I gotta say that it is not just references to Nazi propaganda. There is also references to U.S. propaganda. Mm -hmm. Why we fight is the first thing you see in this film, and that was a series of propaganda films Made in the US, which was originally meant for just the military, but then FDR decided should be distributed to all Americans. You can go watch these. They're in the Library of Congress.
0: I'll get to this later, but apparently Walt Disney was contracted as one of these war propaganda filmmakers. And Disney made a short film about a little boy who gets caught up in the Hitler youth and then joins the Nazi army and eventually they all die. And that's the moral of the story. It's like, if you join with the Nazis, you will all die. And apparently this short film cost more and took more time to make than all of Fantasia, so...
1: Wow.
2: And apparently, as we know by Eric Priebke, who escaped to Buenos Aires, I guess it really isn't true. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I hope we dig into is the thematic parallels, and I, and I recognize that U.S. war films definitely did some of this also, but one of the particular things about Nazi war films, and I'm not just talking about nonfiction propaganda films, but also the melodramas, the musicals, the, you know, family comedies of (laughs) Nazi Germany, that they all tended towards some similar themes. If you think about the musicals from that time period, synchronization, the idea that all of the people in a massive chorus are all in step with each other. You can just picture that. So the idea of all of the people being in sync is one theme that comes up Another is the romanticization of death. And there are a bunch of Nazi films from the time period where it seems like the characters don't really need to die for the plot, but somehow that happens at the end of the film. Like it'll be, you know, about kids going camping together and they're all on like a Hitler youth camping trip and then they get into an argument and then someone gets stabbed by someone who is probably Jewish or probably a communist. And, you know, that part is less important than the idea of this person dying for something they believe in and for the good of the troop or whatever. And that soft focus, very romantic view on death is something that I think comes up a little bit in Starship Troopers as well, along with a very clear definition of gender roles that in films from the time period... Men are men and women are women and very, very much fully embracing the stereotypical idea of both of those gender roles. So we can talk more about that when we come through talking about the film. The only other thing I wanted to note is there are two sex scenes or nude scenes in uh, Starship Troopers. And apparently it took much more effort to get these greenlit than it did for for anything else in the film. And Verhoeven was very skeptical of how is it that all of the violence and, you know, these exploding bugs and the bullets everywhere, like, that's all fine, but you want to do a shower scene and you got to clear it with like 20 executives. So welcome to America.
2: (laughs) And that's exactly what he's satirizing in this film, right? Let's all go to the lobby
1: To get ourselves a treat. I picked a cocktail again. Cocktails are fun, so I'm just kind of going with a the cocktail theme this season. The drink that I chose is called the Stinger. It is a dual cocktail made by adding creme de menthe to brandy, although some recipes vary. The cocktail origins can be traced in the United States back to the 1890s and the beverage did remain widely popular until the 70s. It was seen as a drink of the upper class, so pinkies out, bitches, uh, and it has a somewhat wide cultural impact. The primary uh, alcohol that, that we use is cognac. Um, it's served straight up without ice. So basically, it's two parts cognac to one part creme de menthe. You pour all the ingredients into a mixing glass with ice cubes, stir well, strain into a chilled martini cocktail glass. Um, It's suggested that it's an after-dinner drink, but it has also been suggested during the 20s that the Stinger ceased to being an after-dinner cocktail and uh, instead should be consumed before dinner. However, until recently, the IBA listed the Stinger as an after-dinner cocktail. There are different versions of the stinger that replaced cognac with different ingredients. Like the Mexican stinger replaces uh, cognac with tequila. There you go. There is your beverage for let's go to the lobby this week, the stinger. And as we talk about the movie, you'll find out why. Excellent choice,
0: by the way, yes. that's just, just, yes. <laughs> Chef. Thank <kiss>. you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was a member of the Internet Movie Database going back to its early days. And right around the time this movie came out, IMDb became its own independent company. This was pre-Amazon now. It was mostly film geeks writing reviews to each other. Like it's not it wasn't this huge thing that everybody goes to like it is nowadays. So keep that in mind when I read this review. This is from over 25 years ago. I dug it up. Also, you are limited in the number of words, so they're very brief reviews. But this is what I had written at the time. Ever get the feeling your leaders lied to send you to war? This movie is brilliantly subversive and was rather poorly received by critics and audiences alike. Why? Many just missed the boat or spaceship. It flew right over their heads. Some disliked it because it was unsubtle, from stage-like overacting to bright primary colors in set design. This was not a morally visually gray film like the Alien series, nor was it meant to be. Many people disliked it because it was a perversion of Heinlein's classic novel. This is true, though arguably a straight adaptation would neither have been possible nor watchable, and the essential theme of the book is preserved. And still, others disliked it because it was mismarketed as a science fiction action film a la Aliens, which it clearly is not. But I think the reason it failed to connect with mass audiences is the less obvious fact that it makes fun of them and people just don't like being made fun of. It is a scathing and sadly prescient indictment of how easily the general public can and often has been misled. At the time, I couldn't conceive of people being so dense as to not understand its satire. (laughs) But now in the post-QAnon world, I have been so disabused of that notion that I can understand now why people didn't like it. But I think there are two factors at work. One is what I mentioned earlier or alluded to way back when we were talking about Rambo, the difference between the way a film is marketed and what people are expecting from it and what they get, and the other being people just not understanding satire or Black humor or whatever.
0: So I'm going to say that's part of it. But I think also films that depict fascist societies and the, the heroes or antiheroes who are coming up against it, I think are, are particularly vulnerable to this sort of like missing the satire problem or not just satire, but missing the critique. For instance, how many people do you know who have t-shirts with Darth Vader on them? Or, you know, like are fans of Darth Vader? And like, I'm a fan of Darth Vader, but you have to be very careful that you don't find yourself in any way celebrating or thinking the Empire is cool or anything like that. You know, it's really, really dangerous. And we see shades of this with other films like V for Vendetta. Just looking at how V has become a symbol for QAnoners and people who think the whole government is a conspiracy and it's out to get them. And that that's not the message of the film, necessarily. The message of the film is what happens when vengeance consumes your life and you stop living. A lot of it is also about distrusting the Thatcher-era government and this idea that a militarized government that wants to control every move is something to be suspicious of. But it's not necessarily saying every government is like that. (laughs) So...
2: Yeah, I agree that that's that's a problem. Let me talk about amongst sci-fi fantasy nerds because that's who I was hanging out with at the time. And I remember this film was marketed as an action film. It showed all those bug action sequences in the commercials and stuff like that. And that's a small part of the film. Like, they don't even get to fight bugs until, like, three quarters of the way through the film. Okay, but... Rico's people don't.
0: Yeah. No, there's a lull. There's there's like a good 40 minutes of of not bug fighting in the middle of the film. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think a lot of people were expecting that. And the other thing is, I know a lot of sci-fi fantasy geeks that like go to Worldcon and vote on the Hugos and things like that. And they hate it because it's not Heinlein's novel. Well, the thing is, Heinlein's novel, it's not very cinematic. It's a really good book, but not every book adapts well to the screen. As much as I love the book, I would never have tried to make this into a movie.
0: So part of my question, and since you've you read the book, whether the vision of the military future is done in a way that captivates the imagination and makes you think, like, oh, maybe that is where we're headed, or like at the very least, cool spaceships and cool technology that's described. One of the things that the film deliberately does by intentionally using bad special effects and soft focus and a really intentionally cheesy hackneyed style that kind of refers back to Nazi cinema is that it makes the sci-fi elements seem cheap and dumb and not nearly as interesting. So I wonder if some of it is that the style that Verhoeven employs to signal that this is a satire is the same style that is devaluing the sci-fi elements that might have made the book really cool.
2: Well, the biggest complaint is about the lack of power armor. (laughs) Anyone who's a fan of anime is familiar with mechs, and that's what they are actually in, in the book. So they're in power armor, and that's completely absent here. I have since learned, I didn't know this, but there's an anime... Film adaptation of Starship Troopers came out in the 80s and I haven't seen it. So I don't know if it has mechs in it, but I can't imagine that it doesn't. The tech, there is not a lot of emphasis on it, although that is one thing that they have is the power armor. Another thing that I remember vaguely, and I think it's from this book, was the um, the 30 second bomb. So there's a lot of talk about why they're fighting, why we fight. Right. And it's not To kill, kill them all, like in the movie. Kill, kill them all, you know. It's to accomplish political objectives. In fact, Heinlein is quoted as saying that anyone that says that violence doesn't solve anything should have the Duke of Wellington and Napoleon debate it. And, you know, Hitler can be the moderator, right? So you... So there's a lot of talk about military objectives. And one of the things is the 30-second bomb is a bomb that goes off, but it announces that it's going to go off. I'm a 30-second bomb. I'm a 30-second bomb, 29, 28, 27, to give people time to get away from the bomb. It's telling you that I'm going to go off, right? So there's that. And there's if you remember the knife throwing training scene and they're like, why should we throw a knife when we can just nuke them or something like that? I forget what the exact line was in this. I think it was um, Gary Busey's son that that was like asking about that. (laughs) Now, my recollection in the novel was it's more like a treatise or, you know, a manifesto. And he talks about why do we engage in ground conflicts like Vietnam and stuff like that, rather than just nuking the place? And he says that (laughs) this is where he he talks about, you know, spanking a naughty child kind of thing. It's very colonial. It's like to use a nuke to solve a conflict like this would be like spanking a baby with an ax, you know, using an ax to spank a baby. You know, it's like way overkill for what you're trying to achieve. Michael Ironside's speech is straight Heinlein when he's teaching them in the classroom. Heinlein died in 1988 and probably would have been pretty dismayed with the leadership of this country, the presidents that followed Herbert Walker Bush. So basically Clinton, George W. Bush and Obama and uh, Trump, because None of them served in the military. I mean, W did like some sort of Air National Guard that he never showed up for, but that's exactly the kind of thing that would drive Heinlein bonkers. Like all the previous presidents served in the military leading up to them, like in his lifetime, you know, like Reagan and Carter and Nixon and etc. One direct Heinlein quote from this is to permit irresponsible authority is to sell disaster. And he kind of took to heart the idea of the Roman concept of citizenship being earned through military service. It's an interesting idea. He later clarified that it doesn't have to be military service. It can be any service to the government. So uh, it includes teaching. It includes police work. It includes any government civil service job or Peace Corps type thing. But his idea is that you earn the right to vote that makes you a more informed citizen. And the thing that's interesting about this is it. No longer necessitates the need for a draft, right? So I had to register with Selective Service when I turned 18. And the thing about it is I would have felt much better if they had said, you know, Israel has like a mandate that everybody serve in their military. And
0: which is frightening.
2: That's a little scary, right? But this Allows you to choose what you want to do, but says you have to serve. You have to have some skin in the game in some way in order to run the country, i.e. vote. You can still be a member of the society. I don't know if I 100% agree with it, but it's an interesting concept nonetheless. That's kind of what he was trying to get across in this book. The first phase of his writing career was all juvenile novels. And then there's this one, which we don't know if it's a juvenile novel or not. It wasn't officially marketed as such. But then after this, he writes Stranger in a Strange Land. And that's the second phase of his writing career, which more people are familiar with. The interesting thing is all the right wingers thought he was a leftist radical after Stranger in a Strange Land was released. And everyone thought he was a right winger after he wrote Starship Troopers, so he was an interesting guy. He was He's hard to pin down politically. He doesn't really fit into the traditional left and right boxes, although he did work for the Democratic Party, I think, at one point in time. He's very difficult to pin down. The closest we get to his views in the movie is Michael Ironside's character. Whenever he talks, that's almost Heinlein's voice.
0: Yeah, and that part definitely stood out as being more thoughtful and philosophical the way the novel seems to be. I mean, there's definitely a strong coming of age storyline in the novel and the characters are younger in the book. As far as I I understand it, they're older in the movie. And, and some of that you can sort of feel like it's a little out of step when you're w- watching these people who clearly look like they're in their mid to late twenties playing football and going to their senior prom. <laughs> <Like> there's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, there's part of that that feels like, what am I watching? But I, and I'm curious whether this shows up in the book as well, but one of the things I found very effective about Verhoeven's story is that he's not just lampooning the military, but all of these other American rituals that kind of feed into that mindset. So the the whole concept of the high school football team as being like a pipeline to the military or a, or a surrogate military at home is something that I think we definitely feel now especially like every year there's more statistics about how bad the injuries are and and the brain trauma that these players experience and and that it's a battle out there like these people yet, are getting seriously hurt
2: <laughs> yet everybody is at the time we're recording this so this game was the tigers everybody's going to go root for those tigers in the super bowl
1: that's
0: right. <laughs> I don't actually, to hear any of this year of the Tiger garbage. I'm a Kansas City fan.
1: The game was devastating. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Uh, we won't get into the Bengals. All right.
1: Oh, man. Come on now. Come on.
2: It's actually jump ball, and it's more like arena football, it looks like. Yeah. One thing to keep in mind is that this is not necessarily the U.S., right? we talk about it satirizes America, but in the book it doesn't it doesn't say it doesn't talk much about Terran government, but obviously they're from Buenos Aires and they are Ibanez, Rico, etc. They have like timelines kind of and one of the right things was that the rise. I think timeline kinda you know, at, right. Th- it really has, has of, um, Latin
0: America. Is, is that how the book goes? Cause my impression watching the film is more that America has conquered the entire world. And that even though they are technically Latin America, it is American culture that has superseded the whole planet.
2: The book never says all of the major characters have Latino names And one criticism in the movie is that they're played by people who look very Anglo and stuff like that. Right. Not that you can't have that look and be Latino, but I think that it still kind of works for what the movie does. Because the movie, it makes sense to have them look Aryan, right?
0: Yeah, the most Aryan (laughs) actors that they could possibly find.
2: (laughs) But um,
0: Casper Van Dyne, by the way, I think is a Florida boy. Like, g- born in New Jersey, grew up in Florida. So, <laughs>
1: best of <Yeah>. both worlds.
2: <laughs> I want to take us off on a tangent here because there's also a romance that happens here.
1: A couple of them. Yep.
2: I want to talk about Dizzy versus Carmen. Does anyone else hate Carmen and really want to see Dizzy get Rico? I hate the slut shame, but I'm also a sucker for first girl wins. And so like, I am all about Dizzy. I'm like, Dizzy needs to end up with Rico, right?
1: Right. Right. And she
0: sort of does, right? I mean, well, we get to see her end up with Rico, at least for for part part of the film.
1: (laughs) Which I was disappointed because if you wait that long to get with somebody, you deserve more than 20 minutes and you deserve more than a quickie. Okay, so you know what I mean? That's not fair. But I feel like he should have at least given them an hour. <laughs> um, I don't know. He
0: doesn't seem like the type of guy who could do more than 20 minutes. Like, I think that's all, all he's
1: capable of. But
2: Carmen, I think that the True fact I mean. that, like, he's about to go to war, right? They're about to go to war. He joined up because of her to begin with, and his name is Juan in the book they rename him to john or johnny in the movie you know again the anglicization mm. um, yeah they
1: whitewashed his name
2: but a dear john letter that's literally what he gets a dear john <laughs> video from carmen as they're deploying to the planet where they're all gonna die yes. they're literally the meat grinder they're the frontline forces the Space Marines, although it blurs the line between Army and Marines in this. But basically, I've said how I'm a big fan of Space Marine stories. I mentioned that in a previous episode. Well, this is definitely that. The mobile infantry made me the man I am today. <laughs> that is that is something that is actually in the book. It talks about the disfigurement of people. People who have been through this two or three deployments. They come back, you know, missing limbs and stuff like that. <laughs> like, it doesn't sugarcoat that part.
1: That leads to, like, my favorite scene in the film, where he goes to a list, and the guy's like, yeah, best decision I ever made, pulls away from the desk, and he only has one real limb left, like his left arm. <laughs> Everything else is like, you know, prosthetics.
2: <laughs> now... Heinlein tells it with like deadpan seriousness. It's it just a fact of war, but this satirizes it. And I think it works. I definitely laughed at that part. And again, it's black humor, right? I mean, maybe if I was a soldier and served and like lost a limb, I wouldn't find that scene funny. You remember they Raksaks Roughnecks? They all get a skull tattoo.
1: hmm.
2: In the book, it's actually a piercing. They have a pierced ear. I think, and they have like a skeleton and every deployment, a new bone gets added to it. Eventually, Rico reconnects with his dad, who originally was opposed to this whole idea of him serving and his father eventually enlists that's kind of the story in the book and he had when he runs into him he's got the skeleton you know and has served now and like has the bones or something like that I vaguely remember that it's been a long time since i read the book but
0: that does sound like a much more interesting arc and now i'm kind of curious you know so i mean verhoeven apparently was bored reading it you know it it doesn't seem like I mean, it's not as great as Showgirls, for instance, um, <laughs> <laughs> but that those kinds of, those kinds of storylines that at least reconnect it with the human element is something that it seems Verhoeven very deliberately l- removed <laughs> from, from the story in order to, I don't know whether it's to make the satire more obvious, which apparently still didn't quite succeed at, <laughs> or... I think it's
2: blatantly obvious. Like, I don't know how people can miss that this is a satire, right? When it cuts to those re- those commercials and like, the only good bug is a dead bug, and having little kids stomping on cockroaches and stuff. was like, how is that subtle? Like, how is the <laughs> satire lost there, you
1: know? The whole time watching this movie, I had a really hard time taking it seriously and taking it other than, you know, satirical, just because it was so glossy. It was so polished. It kind of gave me guardians of the galaxy vibes with those commercials, but yeah,
2: there's some nostalgia there. Yeah,
1: definitely. A lot of the criticism or, or
0: thoughts around the film suggest that the bugs are very clearly stand ins for a human enemy and that your mind is supposed to be able to go there to see, that this is exactly how we talked about the Vietnamese, or, you know, this is how we talked about the Koreans in the Korean War, or the Nazis, that they're basically a, a sort of a xenophobic, they're not like us, so let's just kill them all kind of attitude. And I have to say, like, to me, they were always, like, actually bug aliens. And I'm only saying this because I read Ender's Game, and love the turn that happens in Ender's game, which I won't ruin for anyone who hasn't read the book, but, or can I ruin it?
2: Spoiler alert.
0: Can I ruin it? for? I guess so. Um, (laughs) When Ender realizes that he is actively committing genocide, he feels terrible, even though he's been built to believe that these are unfeeling insect aliens, they have no individuality, it doesn't matter, we just have to wipe them all out. But that he has a change of heart. And the book very deliberately wants you to see that connection between like, oh, this is an entire race of people that all think they're just trying to do the right thing. And you shouldn't just wipe them out just because they happen to disagree with you like don't assume that they're evil just because they're different yeah. in this film I never once felt and maybe this is part of where the satire is trying to do its work but that people feel uncomfortable with it is that there's never a moment I feel where it tries to tell you like that the bugs deserve to live there is, seems to be nothing redeeming or There's no hint that they have any intention other than to completely destroy the human race. There's no moment of like, oh, no,
1: maybe they're just protecting themselves. So we do have kind of a brief glimpse of them as a society, because you see at, at one point they have their more intelligent bugs. They have their fighter bugs. They have their leader bugs. Then they have the brain bug they're still bugs though they still that's the disconnect for me is that they're still bugs you know and now we're trying to portray bugs as an intelligent society which ecologically we know that they are but in this movie it just didn't it didn't translate very well at all to the point where it's like hardly even convincing
2: it's been a while since i read the book and i have a tendency to confuse it a little bit because Although I love this book, I also love Joe Haldeman's The Forever War, which came out a few years later and is another Vietnam parable. But both in The Forever War and in this and in the movie Starship Troopers, the enemy isn't talked about and their society isn't talked about a whole lot. You know, I remember Harlan Ellison once was interviewed and they were talking about Star Trek and people are like, oh, isn't this Roddenberry had this great society where there's no racism? He's like, there is racism. There's plenty of racism. We just called them Klingons and, you know, other, you know, etc." <laughs> and that's kind of the way that these are. There is a hint. Where they say, you know, we invaded their territory and they're retaliating and stuff like that. Someone like one of the news people and, and Rico's like, uh, you know, I'm from Buenos Aires and I say kill them all. You know, they they just cut to that, you know, and that's the attitude I saw after 9-11 when people are mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, we're going we're going to we're you know, we're going to war with, with Iraq. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, Iraq. And and they're like, no, they caught they they're responsible for 911 kill them all and i'm like you know that attitude was very prevalent you know
1: yeah we're like well wait a minute weren't most of the guys on the plane like from saudi arabia why are we going after iraq what is up here
2: <laughs> yeah the idea that the bugs might be the victims is hinted at mhm where it really parallels what happened in the years to come after that, basically, is this desert planet far away. This was before the Iraq War. Let's remember also that this movie came out when largely there weren't a lot of women in the military. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 2016 that women could choose any specialty, including combat units. Think about that for a minute, it being ahead of its time for that reason.
0: Like halfway there. The women do get some leadership roles as pilots and whatnot but a lot of the missions still revolve around like rescuing the girl from the giant bug you know like it's it's kind of both ways
2: yeah I, I think it's hilarious that Dizzy's the one that comes up with the great plan in the capture the flag thing and Rico's the one that gets made squad leader because he, yeah. he used that plan you know yeah exactly <laughs> but I think it's conscious of that right I think that that's that was not an accident like all these things in Verhoeven's movie he doesn't Tie everything up nice and neat. It's like it's there and you have to extract it out yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Well,
0: and it's connected to different things.
2: This book is where the term bug hunt comes from. And I wanted to bring that up because we mentioned it when when we were talking about aliens. Is this going to be another bug hunt? Now, bug hunt then got adopted. Soldiers started using that term in Vietnam for these hazy missions they were sent on to go you know, kill Vietnamese, you know, it's like, it's another bug hunt.
0: This is now a good time for us to talk about the sandworm in the film. I was about halfway through the film and I was like, what is the sandworm? Cause it's been a while, you know, I, I probably saw this film maybe five years ago. And when we saw it, I, I was suddenly like, oh yes, <laughs> this, this very unforgettable <laughs> sandworm. I can't believe that I had somehow blocked this from my mind. It's another, you know, like the alien, like classic body horror, genitalia of all different species and sexes combined together into one horrible monster. Um, (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) With a vagina right in its face. Yeah. We're talking. And then a stinger penis that sucks the brains out of your head. (laughs) We are talking about what is
2: called the brain bug in the film. Yes. Yes. And this is where Doogie Hauser, uh, Doogie Hauser SS, gets to shine. Which, by the <laughs> way, Neil Patrick Harris is dressed like a friggin' SS officer in this whole film. It's exactly the Nazi uniform with the insignia changed, right? So I don't see how people do not see right. the satire here. Mm hmm. You know, it's
0: like. <laughs> Maybe all the people who miss the satire are are people who are secret Nazis or no secret Nazis. Like they're all, they're all neo-Nazi people who miss the satire.
2: There's been a huge reappraisal of this film. Here's a great little exercise. Go back and you can do this on IMDb or any other site. Look at all the reviews of this film pre and post Iraq war. It's like night and day. Suddenly people now get what he was saying in the 90s. Back to the brain bug. This is the sandworm. It looks like a sandworm. It acts like a sandworm. I'm going to throw us back to a different movie. There was a scene in one of the Tales from the Crypt movies, Tales from the Crypt, Bordello of Blood, where they go into the bordello of vampire women and like they have super soakers filled with holy water and they just (laughs) shoot up the place. (laughs) There's burning torsos and it, it's the scene of carnage. And there's this moment of like, oh, my God, what have we done? And one of the characters in it played by Dennis Miller back when Dennis Miller was actually funny. And, <laughs> and he's got this line where they've just killed all of these vampires in this horrible way. And they're all like screaming and dying, you know, from the holy water. And he says the guys says some kind of line like, my God, what have we done? And Dennis Miller is like. They're vampires, send them to hell <laughs> and, like I feel that same way about the brain bug because there 's this this horrible scene where this thing's got this spear that like shoots through the forehead of its victims and sucks their brains out and it 's like one of the humans captured by the bugs was Ibanez. she 's like about to get her brain sucked out, the thing's like coming towards her and like Fortunately, she is saved and they capture the brain bug, you know, surrounded by soldiers. And Doogie Hauser SS has to go up and like commune with the brain bug because he's telepathic, you know, and can speak to animals. And he communes with it. and Everybody wants to know what the brain bug's thinking. And he says, it's afraid. And everyone's like, yeah, it's afraid, you know, and like, I think we're supposed to. Think that in that minute, oh no, it's horrible that they're cheering that this 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 animal is terrified. But just five minutes earlier, that animal was about to suck people's brains out and didn't care how terrified they were at all of that. So it's like that's my Dennis Miller moment. It's like, it's a brain bug. Send it to hell.
1: And that (laughs) takes us back
2: to war makes fascists of us all,
1: right? Right. I just thought it was funny when they killed the brain bug, they put this big censored bar across it. I watched the movie with my 18 year old yes! and we lost our minds. We laughed so hard at that part. Well, okay. <laughs> I want to point out very
0: specifically, like they show them like poking and prodding and torturing it on the outside. And they censor the part where it's very clearly being raped by some like horrible metal object. Like <laughs> right? They censor, they censor the part where they are damaging its face vagina and <laughs>
1: yeah yeah that but i mean cutting yeah, bodies it, head in half with with you know with 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 their claws and, and whatnot that's totally fine but yeah you know yeah okay i mean I, I did not want to see that just to i didn't clear. want to like, see it either i was but... grateful for the sensor bar in that particular moment <laughs> that was good comedic timing for sure
2: I want to remind everybody to like, and subscribe, give us a review. That would really help us out on whatever platform you happen to download us from. If you want to communicate with us, well, we have a Facebook group called geek channel eight discussion group, where we talk more about these films and we have an email address, GC eight podcast. That's letter G letter C number eight podcast at gmail.com. You can send us your thoughts there. And if we like it, we might read it on the show. Until next time, this is Eric.
1: This is Rosie. This is Johanna.
2: Signing off.
0: Come on, you sons of bitches. Want to live forever?